From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Our very own Vice President of Theology, Colin Donovan, is in the house. If you'd like to be part of the program, pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 2712985 and we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 and you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams Michael McCall producing the program your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts so if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook live you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, the aforementioned Colin Donovan, how are you? Uh, doing pretty good. We've got this little uh, synod deal coming up here. Oh, do we now? Yeah, I've been yeah. working towards this for uh, about, what, five years? Something uh, like that. It's, it seems like that. I, yeah. It's been at least three. Yeah, yeah. so um, everything everybody wanted to know about the synod, but we're afraid to ask, go. <laughs> Well, um, you know, I, I think a lot of people are perplexed. There's a number of perplexing things about it. Uh, one is it's not following the normal mode of a synod. Uh, synod of bishops, by a tradition, has, uh, has bishops. It's always had, it al- has always had delegates, say, from the religious orders, male and female orders, sending their superiors, generals, and, and even outside observers. As at the Second Vatican Council, you had uh, Orthodox, Orthodox uh, bishops there, and you even had some uh, observers from the Protestant churches. So that, that element of it. Uh, there is something new in this one in this respect, in that the lay members are there to speak and give advice on an equal footing with the clerical members, and in particular bishops, and some people are are a little bit disturbed about that. Um, I was just reading here in the last few days uh, one of the encyclicals of Pope John Paul II, and it reminds us of the nature of the Petrine office, and a point that he made there in the encyclical that they may be one, ut unum sint, in reaching out to the Orthodox and potentially to other communions as they addressed whether there could ever be a role for the Petrine ministry in their particular uh, ecclesiastical bodies, the Pope makes the point that the manner of exercising the office, his office at that time, that's up to the Pope. Because ultimately, the will of the Pope or the decision of the Pope will be what the authority is behind the Synod, regardless of the input. The bishops could vote, say one thing, and the Pope contradict that. Or they might not say something that he thinks needs to be said, and yet he could put that in the final document. 
or put his authority behind it. So I, I think for people who are getting a little bit nervous about this, they should keep in perspective that most of the mechanisms of practicing governance and uh, teaching and so on in the church are instruments that have developed over time, but the ultimate source of those things is the apostolic order, the bishops and the pope at the head of the college, and how that is exercised is ultimately up to their either collective decision, as in a council, or up to the particular decision of a pope, and particularly with respect to his office. Nobody can tell him or contradict him as to how he wishes to uh, express it. So I, I think we have to sort of sit back and hold our breath and catch our breath, uh, really, and wait to see what the outcome is. I think uh, by Pope Francis's own decision, he has indeed brought together many different viewpoints. Some you would call to be traditionalist, some you would call to be progressive, but he has all brought them together and they will air their views from both sides of that, uh, that equation. Uh, he spoke when he was made Pope about making a mess, that sometimes it's a good thing to stir the pot up and to get all of this laundry out in the air, as it were, and air that out and to have an open, honest discussion about it. But realizing that in the end, it's not only just the Pope, but it's Christ himself who stands behind the Petrine office and protects it from those decisions which would contradict the faith and, and so on. So I think we need to have peace in our hearts and peace in our minds about the Senate. Let's see how it develops. It will continue on next year as, as well. And out of this will probably come uh, some document, uh, whether establishing a procedure by which something similar is done in the future or, or other matters. Uh, but in the end, our faith doesn't rest on procedures or even on an individual pope, but on Christ's promise to be with Peter and to give Peter the means of strengthening his brothers in the faith and strengthening them in the communion, which we have as a worldwide church, as the Catholic, the universal church. So I think we, we, we throw ourselves on Christ in all things, uh, because in the end, it, whatever comes of it, will uh, our, our faith will, will sustain us and keep us strong and guarantee that the outcome uh, will in the long run be for the good of the church. What would you say to those folks who <clears throat> derive a certain amount of frustration from their perception mm -hmm. that Francis has named delegates who, again, in their perception, have sort of obstinately held to very non-Catholic ideas? I, th I think that's a perception that is uh, quite real. In the sense that I that I think I was trying to portray, that these indeed are per opinions in the church, rather large minorities, with the great middle group, as in most or things, least, at least loud minorities. Loud and yes, to what percentage of the church would be called more progressive and and so on? That would be yeah, it would be hard to characterize that, and generally trying to make those kinds of political characterizations is, is not a good idea. But to know that, I guess, in some sense, he wants them to know that they have been heard, and maybe they will benefit from what the other, you know, the counter position is. 
Um, I think is it is it a is it a methodology that is fraught with difficulties? Absolutely. But one difficulty it doesn't have is that ultimately uh, Christ is the foundation of the church, and the successor of Peter is the one who will has the charism to ensure that it doesn't fail. Not because he is weak. There's a wonderful part of that Ut Unum Sint where Pope John Paul II talks about the weakness of St. Peter and how this weakness is almost, you could say, intrinsic to the office of Peter, always to remind, re- remind him that he himself struggles against weakness and that it's the strength of Christ, it's grace, it's mercy, in particular mercy, which is the, the means of, to be manifested to Peter as well as to the church. So Peter received mercy, the church extends in mercy, uh, out, puts out the merciful hand to others. For some, maybe it's often too merciful. You know, but I often think uh, of, of what uh, our Lord told uh, St. Uh, Faustina, and that is that prior to God returning in justice, people will be given the chance to pass through his mercy. And so the church, like Our Lady, holds out the hand of mercy. And the Pope makes that clear with regard to the office of Peter, uh, as well as uh, to remind himself and future popes that weakness is endemic to the human condition and the successor of Peter is just as subject to it uh, as the original pope was and as all of us are. Too merciful? That's not good theology. What? Is it? Is there any such thing as too merciful? It's like humility. You can't get enough of it, I suppose. (laughs) The church has been here for over 2,000 years. It will be here for over 2,000 more should our Lord tarry. And if we find uh, distress in our hearts about these proceedings, my suggestion is to go to Eucharistic Adoration. That's that's pretty much what the solution is, because we throw ourselves on our Lord. We can't see things. We can't see all things. We don't know the future. But, you know, hope, trust in God, hope in Him. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. We'll talk to Paul in the Republic of Texas straight ahead, and we want to hear from you. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, Wings is EWTN's weekly e-newsletter. You can find out about EWTN radio and TV shows, items from EWTN's religious catalog, and a whole lot more. You can sign up for Wings at EWTN.com and simply click on subscribe. Paul has been the most patient human being in North America. He's been holding on since the last hour in the Republic of Texas, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Paul, your patience is being rewarded. You're on with Colin Donovan. 
Yes, thank you for taking my call. Oh, you're welcome. My question, well, thank you. My question is, we're celebrating the Archangels today, right. the Beast of the Archangels, and I know it's Gabriel, Raphael, and, uh, uh, and Michael, but I was wondering, I chose this year, I was, uh, I chose, I chose Burial, and, uh, I, I asked my priest, could I, could I have Burial as my confirmation name? St. Burial. Mm-hmm. And he said yes. And then my, the sister who was giving me the lesson said, you better think about that a little bit. And I said, so I contacted the diocese, and the diocese said, sure, you can use St. Burial. But I'm, but I'm getting, getting some, cross, I'm getting some wires crossed, people saying, yeah, it's okay. No, it isn't. And I do know that the bishop, when I had confirmation, put his hands on me and, and used the name Uriel. So I, I'm wondering, mm-hmm. am, am I fine or is there something else I need to do? <laughs> um, well, if I were your pastor or your bishop I, or somebody at the diocese, I would not have given that conclusion. And here's why. The church recognizes that there are three archangels whose names we know. Michael, Raphael, and Gabriel. Obviously, we're celebrating their feast days. Formerly, they were celebrated on different dates under the old traditional calendar, but now they are celebrated all on what was the Feast of St. Michael, uh, historically, the 29th of September. There are, in uh, numerous places in the world, church uh, altars uh, which honor the seven archangels, and there are various lists of the other four, Uh, There is in Rome at least two chapels honoring the seven archangels, one at Il Gesù, the Jesuit church, and one at Santa Maria degli Angeli, the church of Mary of all the angels. Uh, And so again, the number seven. But the lists are various. They're from the Apocrypha. Uh, In other words, they're not from canonical scripture, and the church hasn't recognized them. And... uh, The Holy See has at least two times in the last 40 years uh, said that devotion to angels other than those named in sacred scripture uh, should not be practiced by uh, by the faithful. In other words, to use those names, whether to seek the names of angels in prayer. Some people have, you know, asked their guardian angel to tell them their name. They shouldn't be doing that. Uh, or to use uh, names, uh, angel names from the other, uh, the other lists. Now, that is a name that's very, fairly common on the list, so if you had to pick a name, at least you picked one which is not completely outside of tradition, little t. Uh, and in the East, it's a name that I believe is on some of the Eastern lists, and some of the churches do refer to that. But in the Latin church, there, there hasn't been any tradition of, of doing that. So... I wouldn't, I wouldn't have recommended that, and in a certain legalistic sense, you could say that, well, it violates the norm that we should not be uh, promulgated by then Cardinal Ratzinger on two occasions, that we shouldn't be showing devotion to angels by their name, by, by their mission. We understand from St. Thomas Aquinas that the angels all have missions, so uh, numerous saints have prayed to the angel of this or that. I remember Laura Vicuna, one of the uh, uh, a Salesian saint from Latin America. She used to pray to the saint of to the angel of little things. Uh, maybe maybe Saint Teresa of Lisieux, in her little way, probably may have prayed to that angel as well. 
But there we're not trying to name them. We're not trying to have power over them as that naming uh, suggests. So it's, I think it's always best to follow the norms of the church and the wisdom uh, of those norms. At least I think you've chosen a name which is on a number of the lists of, of, the, of non-canonical angels, if you will, uh, archangels. Uh, but I would, I would not have recommended that practice myself. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Mark is in Tulsa, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Mark, you are on with Colin Donovan. Thank you for uh, accepting my call. Colin, I have two questions. One of them, when they in, it did the Nicene Creed, mm-hmm. they do not have in the Nicene Creed the communion of saints. And I was wondering if there's anything behind that. And second, you know, with all the strikes going on, uh, how's the church standing and supporting of labor? Sure. Um, with regard to the Nicene Creed, remember that it's not just the Nicene Creed, it's also the Council of Constantinople. There were two Nicaeas, Constantinople. So it is, it is, a, collective, it is a collective work in that sense. Uh, so the communion of saints uh, was added in, in in that respect, and so that is at least in the Western Church the long-standing uh, uh, words of the Nicene Creed. Uh, the uh, I, I don't think there's ever been any dispute east or west over the fact that there is a communion of the saints. And in some way, the Nicene Creed is meant to be the essential, an essential characteristics of the faith, the articles of the faith, uh, and that is the most important ones in the hierarchy of truths which necessary to believe uh, in order to call oneself a Christian. And so, in, from that point of view, the communion of saints completely adequately describes our destiny and that is to not just to be a church here on earth, but a church in heaven surrounded by the angels and the saints of God with Christ and Our Lady. Uh, and so uh, it's fittingly in there. Most of those things came about because at the time of the debates in those councils, there was confusion or at least rejection of the common apostolic faith. And to make it certainly clear that something was part of it, it was included in as an article in the creed uh, at one of those councils. And so it wasn't simply, well, let's, let's say something positive that we believe. No, there was usually some, some effort to be comprehensive against the errors of the day and state them succinctly. And that is why in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, everything else is sort of subsumed under those articles. That within one of those articles, for instance, regarding uh, the Christ or the Church, you can say very many things which are not specifically and explicitly said in that article, but is nonetheless part of the faith handed on from the time of the Apostles. And so that's why the Catechism looks both at the Ten Commandments and at the uh, at the Our Father, as well as uh, the Articles of the Creed, as sort of a total expression of the dogmatic, moral, and spiritual uh, beliefs of the Church, under which everything else can be tucked as a elaboration of the of the profoundest meaning of that particular article. 
And the communion of the saints certainly deserves to be uh, at the top of its own body of beliefs that we can we could go on and elaborate. Michael P. is watching us on YouTube, and he has a question for you, Colin. Why isn't the Feast of St. Michael the Archangel a solemnity and a holy day of obligation? Well, because most of the solemnities are dealing in a particular case. So St. Francis is not a solemnity unless you're in one of the Franciscan communities. Uh, St. Michael is uh, not a solemnity unless you're in a community which uh, had has some particular relationship with uh, St. Michael or perhaps with the angels. Under his, their patronage. Uh, under their patronage or something like that. Or where a diocese is, uh, has him as, their, uh, as their, uh, the patron saint of, the, of that particular area. And so that's, that's, uh, that's an important, uh, important key to that. Not everybody can have a solemnity on the, on the liturgical calendar, but it's given to particular groups who have a particular familiarity or a particular love or a particular relationship with a particular saint. There is one element of the, of the, of the caller's question, we didn't, and that is the question of the unions. Right. Remember what the social teaching is that the workers have a right for collective bargaining just as the employer has the right to, use, to raise capital, to build up a business. So on the one hand, you have a general approval of capitalism and a free market performed in a moral way, and likewise, with labor unions, is necessary to protect the rights of workers. That doesn't mean that just because a union were to strike or not to strike, that the church puts its stamp of approval on that. But generally, the church has been very favorable to unions because of the large number of people uh, that are, are affected by it, and so has uh, has has protected, announced, and defended the right of workers to strike. Um, that's not an approbation of any particular element of collective bargaining, however. Uh, all of those would have to be looked at also with regard to the justice and the prudence of it as well, because you could be making reasonable demands or unreasonable demands. And likewise, the employer could be reasonable or unreasonable in his responses. So we are each subject to the morality of each of those individual parts and uh, the church doesn't give a blanket uh, approval uh, to any single element of either the free market or the collective bargaining. Nor does she swing on the wide arc that culture tends to. We tend to, um, we don't, we, we view things through different lenses than, than the church does. And I think, you know, we tend to yeah. be more sympathetic toward blue-collar causes as opposed to uh, causes or unions that represent those that we perceive to be unreasonably affluent to begin with. Right, and I, I, I mean, certainly that's been one of the biggest complaints, I think, against capitalism and a legitimate one, and that is, you know, very often it seems to work out fine for those who are higher up in the hierarchy and less fine for those who are down. But, I mean, there are other considerations, what, too. What political system can you not say that about? <laughs> exactly. This is why everything is, all of the elements have to be considered individually. You can't make blanket approvals or dismissals of any particular one. Oh, capitalism is evil. You know, labor unioning, that's evil. It's not, that's simply not possible uh, because 
every one of those have a relationship of justice and charity that has to be uh, analyzed and see, you know, what is a reasonable and graced solution to this problem. And I hope that in Detroit and elsewhere where these things are being discussed, they're bringing reason and grace to the table. You're not planning on organizing theologians, are you? You know, that might be a bad idea. we got enough of them hanging around here at EWTN. <laughs> it's EWTN's Open Line Friday with theologian Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If I could invite you all into the studio during the breaks, you would never trust another word Colin Donovan says. Oh, I can just tell oh, you. Oh, that's a balderdash <laughs> We all have our moments. Our friends at the Station of the Cross need to hear from you next week. They're airing their 2023 Fall Appeal all next week. So if you're listening to any of their 20 stations in New York, Pennsylvania, Northeast Ohio, and Massachusetts, please please support them and everyone else. Please support your local EWTN Catholic radio station. You know what I don't understand is Johnette is so eloquent. Yeah, well, you know, what are you going to do? We're not opposite we're, 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 we're not blood relatives. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Um, back to the phones we go. Lydia is in Midland, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Lydia, help me. You're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, how you doing today? Oh, pretty good. Good. I just want to let you know I love angels. I collect angels. And I was gonna I was wondering because I know I have an angel because my angel has saved my life and my mama's life mm-hmm. on a trip. And, uh, and I just wanna know how do you know what their names are? Uh you don't. And that was the whole the whole point of what I what I was saying earlier. Uh we're not permitted to seek that. The reason is pretty clear. Um, as we heard in the liturgical reading today, when the devil was thrown down to earth by St. Michael, Revelations chapter 12, he took a third of the stars with him, his tails. That's what's understood in the early church to be one-third of the angels. So one-third of the angels are now evil, and of course two-thirds remain faithful with God, following the words of Michael, who is like God. So... Knowing a name does not guarantee that you're talking to a good guy. And seeking a name is almost a guarantee that one of the not good guys is going to answer. Because the good angels know the will of God. They're not going to do that without God's permission. But the other side doesn't care about that. So the church says, we don't seek that. You can simply... Pray to the guardian, your guardian angel, uh, as uh, Pope John Paul, the, John Twenty Third, used to say to the apostolic nuncios, the diplomats of the Holy See, as they were going out to their new, uh, new duties in a different country, and so on. He recommended a practice he had always followed in his life with the priest, and that is, when you have a difficult person you need to deal with, you send your guardian angel to them. Say, guardian angel, go and prepare the way for me to speak to so-and-so. And you pray with their guardian angel, his or her guardian, prepare the way for this. 
We can do it using pronouns, and we can do it uh, by saying, giving, you know, name to the guardian, just simply holy guardian angel is fine. He knows who he is. Why do you have to know his name, especially a name that may not be his, since he's unlikely to respond since the church forbids it? And the angels generally are going to do, unless God has told them otherwise, what the church says, they will follow that as well, even though um, they are angels and not human beings. So uh, don't do that, in other words, Lydia. Don't seek the name of your angel. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines. Al is in Connecticut listening on Veritas Radio today. Al, you are on with Colin Donovan. <clears throat> do Catholics still believe in confessing their sins to a priest? <clears throat> Uh, yes, because it's in the Scripture, and the Church has done it for all these uh, th- hundreds of years. Uh, so it's part of the teaching of the Church. It's part of the order of the Church established by Christ himself. Uh, and so whether an individual Catholic uh, goes to confession, uh, that's hopefully something he will do if he has committed a serious offense against God. Uh, but uh, as to the church's belief, yes, absolutely. Confession uh, or uh, penance or reconciliation, all of these are equivalent names. Uh, this is one of the seven sacraments of the church, uh, which other churches, which the Eastern churches, the Orthodox churches, and the other ancient churches, which used to be in union with Rome, also still have. But which, sadly, since the Reformation, most of the Protestant churches have dropped. Although in high Anglicanism, um, we had a neighbor when we lived in England, and Saturday they would go down to confession. Even though they were not Catholics, they would go to their Anglican church, which practiced the, you know, the, the more Catholic form of Anglicanism versus the more Protestant form of Anglicanism. Uh, so they, they at least thought they had a sacrament of, of confession and, and took part in it. Was there more to that you wanted to know? Well, my question is based upon what I observed in my parish. <clears throat> On Sunday Mass, everyone present receives the Holy Eucharist. But for the act of reconciliation, very, very few are present. <laughs> Well, well, this is not an unusual phenomenon, yes. unfortunately. Yeah, Sa- sadly, that's true. Uh, I don't know what the logic is. It's uh, depending on where you live. It's preached from the pulpit. Uh, it also depends on one's own individual sense of sin. We live in, to put it mildly, a libertine culture, and in this libertine culture, many people get the idea that many things are not so bad after all, and they do them without any kind of sense of having sinned, especially the sexual arena is one of those. Um, But also, you know, sins, I think we also miss the point that it's very easy to sin against charity. We think of chastity, but there's also humility and charity, which are not all that difficult to sin against. You know, our Lord said, you know, if you know, if you say an angry word to somebody, well, how many angry words come out of our month before we th- mouth before we say, 
you know, maybe I have an anger problem and I need to go to confession and, and admit this to the priest and ask from, through his hands the, the grace uh, as a minister of Christ, the grace to overcome this weakness and defect in my soul. Um, so I think people, maybe they're not committing mortal sins of anger, but maybe they, you know, maybe they'd like to kill their, uh, their show moderator from time to time and they go need to confess that. Uh, or they get a little angry with him. But it's it's something that we very easily, oh, that's trivial, so I'm not going to go. There used to be very pr- commonly practiced what was called a devotional confession. And that is going on a regular schedule, periodically, saying the sins which were predominant in one's life. They may be not be great sins, but I'm prone to anger, you know, or I'm prone to look at things on the internet that I shouldn't, or I'm prone to be unforgiving when people say they're sorry, or whatever it, our personal problems are. The devotional confession has fallen out of fashion, yet it's a way of sort of tuning up for avoiding the bigger sins when the opportunity comes along to commit them. And people aren't using it, sadly, and I think uh, it would be great if more people did. Uh, it's it's the way to become saints. It's the way to prepare for eternal life when we will be saints. And we will either get there by way of the confessional or we will get there by way of purgatory uh, if we get there at all. And so we need to be careful. You know, when we first came to Alabama, we have a, in Birmingham here, we have a significant uh, population whose heritage is Central and South American. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of our larger parishes that have very large Spanish-speaking uh, populations, right. and they will have Spanish-language masses on the weekends. Yeah. And my late wife Susie came came to Birmingham a few months before the rest of the family, and she was commuting from Huntsville, where her mother lived, which is a two-hour drive. So because of that long commute, she would find herself in unusual situations trying to get to mass on Sunday. Mm -hmm. And uh, she went to the Spanish language masses a couple of times, which are offered in the evening. And you're looking at, you know, a a sanctuary or a a church that holds, you know, 1,200 people jam-packed, standing room only. And she noticed that less than half the people would go up to receive communion. Right. that's the traditional and there, practice. And there is a there's a lesson to be learned there because she, she asked a priest finally after mm-hmm. a couple months of this what was going on. And he said they, you know, while they may not be doing everything they ought to do during the week, they take very seriously the church's teaching on sin and confession. Yeah. And and this this is another case where the, the influence of the culture were so worried about human respect. And Mother talked about this a lot on her show. You know, out of human respect, we won't say what is morally wrong to other people. But also out of human respect, we don't, will not stay in our pew if we haven't been to confession and we have a mortal sin. So people are making the decision, maybe with the best of intentions, you hope, uh, going to confession uh, even though they are going to communion, even though they have Either that or we have a lot of very holy people. We need to ramp up the mechanisms of canonization in the church for all of us. But uh, 
If I were a betting man, I'd say it's the former. Uh, probably. <laughs> probably. Yeah. God bless you, Al. We appreciate that phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We still have time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Terry writes in, both of my parents died in their 80s from heart failure and Alzheimer's. They both went into hospice programs before their death and gradually slipped into comas where they were not able to eat or drink fluids. Mm -hmm. Are we obligated as Catholics to have a feeding tube or IV fluids inserted at that point to prolong their life? It depends on their medical condition. Um, there's an there's an obligation as Pope John Paul II taught in in basically decide this is a rather in human history this has not typically been a problem you got sick you died you know now we can do transplants we can got the, all kinds of ways of saving people who are in extremis or in in danger of death that we didn't have before so in the modern medical context the pope had to clarify this issue it comes down to this if a person's body has not shut down they deserve the humanity of being cared for with food and water. And the time when their body can no longer process it, then that's when it's morally uh, or medically not, uh, not useful. That's the time when it can be refused. So a person who's only... A, a classic example is the case of Terry Schiavo in Florida in the 90, 1990s, where she was she was simply bedridden. She'd been in a coma for years. Um, her husband, uh, who'd more or less abandoned her to the care of her own family, ultimately sought to turn off the devices that kept her alive, remove the feeding tube, and stop the the giving of of, of water by by uh, uh, into the into the vein, and he did it because the court ruled that he could. But there, she was not dying; she was not in the process of her organs shutting down. That can only be classified as murder. She didn't die of a disease; she died because somebody refused to give her food and water. And that's the question that can be asked in those cases. If I don't give food and water to this aged parent who's comatose and Alzheimer's uh, ridden or uh, with Alzheimer's, will that be the cause of his or her death? If it is, then your decision is the cause of his or her death. If they are dying and their organs are shutting down and at that point you don't give them water, that would be counterproductive. They would swell up and all the conditions go with it or if their their body is no longer breaking down those uh, those nutrients the liver has failed or whatever those are the kinds of situations where you're giving care which is futile and will only unnecessarily prolong their suffering those are the circumstances futile med medically but otherwise if it's simply our humanity and our respect for their humanity that causes us to give them food and water until they can no longer take them and their disease of agedness or whatever it is takes their life. That's, that's, the, that's the criteria that should be used. 
Um, be sure to check out the Bear Wozniak Adventure Saturday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. This week, his guest is Doug Barry, who talks about what it means to be a true spiritual man. That's the Bear Wozniak Adventure Saturday night, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Still time for your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Jeff in Ontario, Canada wants to know, Colin, I am a revert to the Catholic faith, and very few of my family and friends are Catholic, including my wife. Occasionally, I will hear disrespectful or disparaging remarks about the Catholic Church, priests, etc., at family gatherings or in public, and I say nothing. Is it a sin to remain silent in such situations? What should we do when we hear such things? And should we react differently with family members as opposed to strangers? Sure. Yeah, as a general matter, uh, charity obliges us, and, and also love of justice would oblige us to say something, to say it in a way, of course, that's as acceptable to them, and that might be winning them a little bit over to the truth. Um, the other, and the case would be we're not obliged to do something which is uh, greatly inconvenient for us. If that were to destroy relationships or, or, or lose us our job or something like that, uh, there's no obligation. You still can, but the obligation of charity would lapse under, gra under a, a grave inconvenience such a, as that might present. But you might think of things that you might say in that circumstances, you know, nod your head uh, sympathetically. Yes, I certainly know the stories of the very bad priests, but I've also known very holy and good priests or something positive like that to sort of diffuse it. He might cause them to think. And in the or other... Maybe even just ask them calmly and yeah, politely, th that could, where did you hear that? That could be if 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 humor or because at least, most of them are just regurgitating something that they've been told, right? Yeah, and I'm thinking of ways that would be a way to maybe get an intro into a legitimate discussion of this, because ultimately this is a point we talked about earlier, and with regard to the synod and with other circumstances, and that is that we know where the church is because Christ tells us it's in the gospel. Did Jesus mean that it's only his church if everybody in it is saints? If only if only when the apostle, the apostle when they cease being saints, Lord, I hope not. <laughs> well, then we could understand why it didn't last a generation. But I think the words he gave to the apostles on the day of his ascension should give us pause if we think that, because he said he would be with them until the end of the age. Now, who is he speaking to? Because the apostles didn't outlast that age, much less the larger, you know, age, end of the age. Did he mean the end of this century? Did he mean the end of the 60s AD? Uh, did he mean when John the Apostle died? That's the end. No, he meant at the end of history when he comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Until then, where is that church that is described in the New Testament? So you might have some ammunition there when they get on the church. But I think the easiest way to sort of is to lean in it a little bit with a good sense of humor, with, uh, a, you know, a question such as Jack proposed. But uh, also 
maybe in defense of the clergy, to, to make positive statements about them, you know, and the fact that the experience of most Catholics is that priests are good <clears throat> men who care about their flocks. And I think that is the experience of the overwhelming majority of Catholics. We only hear about the ones who get off get off the purposes of their ministry and get on to their own purposes, whether in financial matters or sexual matters or, or, or other things. What about the differentiation of family and strangers? Uh, with strangers, it's probably a little less obligatory because you, you know, they'll just, what, what influence will you have? This is sort of one of the nice things about radio is we're giving sort of a shotgun approach to to apologetics or to theology or that, and it'll depend upon the disposition of the hearer. Uh, so yeah, in a larger group of, of friends and family, you may have some more sympathetic to you and others who just, you know, keep quiet or chuckle at a, something like that simply because they themselves are afraid to speak up. And maybe by speaking up, you know, Aunt Aunt Betty will come over and say, you know, I've wanted to say something like that for a long time, but, you know, I don't, you know, I don't want the rest of the family hating me. <laughs> yeah, you may find you have some friends among your family, in other words. Uh, Jan is a first-time caller in the great state of New Jersey, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Jan, you are on with Colin Donovan. Hi, Dr. Donovan. Um, I was wondering if you could speak on our being in the fifth age of the church with possibly in the next 10 to 15 years after some trials that we might be entering the sixth age which could be a, a time of peace the the um the church hasn't subscribed to this division of history in that way but rather to speak generally of the the church age as the time between the first and the second coming so it's the time of the church, it's the time of the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is working through the church, uh, through her apostles, through her institutions, the sacraments, and so on, uh, at the end of which Christ himself will come. Now Catholic mystics, including some blesseds and saints, have spoken of a period of, of time before the end of the world, which is something of a dress rehearsal for the end of the world, and that might sort of fit your, uh, your uh, what you described there. But they've not used the, uh, the language which I think originated with uh, Joachim and Fiore, if I'm not mistaken, in the 1100s or 1200s, who came up with a theory of the various ages of the church that you know, didn't really get any traction with the church. But I think the idea that we are in a time as, uh, our, of course, Our Lady at Fatima spoke of this, and the Church has uh, thrown the, the weight of credibility behind the message of Fatima, behind the message of St. Faustina, to, our, who, to whom our Lord said that before I come in justice, uh, there, is the, there is this time of mercy, uh, and if we will not pass through his mercy, we will pass through his justice sort of speaks of a preparatory time as well. So there is this sense that uh, a crisis in history by which we embrace, uh, we embrace the, the, uh, the truth more fully, or in which God in his own timing will decide to bring this all to an end uh, with the second coming. 
and not like the Protestants who in some theologies see, well, this is a coming which will establish a kingdom on earth. Christ already has a kingdom. It's in heaven. It's a spiritual kingdom made of those who have gone through his passion, death, and resurrection through baptism. Uh, it's, a, it's a kingdom which is eternal and doesn't need to be temporal on the earth except in the sense that after the consummation of all things, the earth itself will be spiritualized as the body of Christ is spirit, as our bodies will be spirit. This is the doctrine of the church, that the world and the universe is itself will be resurrected and that creation will share in the glory of, hum of the resurrection uh, of which Christ is our forerunner and our example of, of, of that. But until then, yes, we will go through trials. Some have called it the trial of the church or the passion of the church or the, uh, or the little tribulation or something like this. And then a final time of preparation in which we will complete the evangelization of the world, which has not been yet completed. Uh, we've hardly touched the south and we've hardly touched the east of the world. And Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict said that the general evangelization has not been completed. There are some people who said, oh, we've evangelized everywhere. Therefore, the Lord can come next week. The Antichrist next week and, and, Christ, and Christ in you know, three and a half years or whatever. No, we haven't evangelized the world. We've tried, we've failed, but at some point, we will have the Chinese, and we will have the Africans, and we will have the other people as well. doesn't mean that we in the West won't lose the faith in order that they might get it, and history will reveal whether that's the case or not, and I hope it is not. So trial, yes, and we are probably at the early stages of that. Uh, but when, when we will have peace in that final era prior to the coming of Christ, that's in God's timetable, not ours. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, our call screener, Matthew Bensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks again for a great week of EWTN's Open Line. Back at it next week with Father John Tregilio on Monday, Father Wade Menezes talking faith, family, and fellowship on Tuesday, Father Mitch on Wednesday, Father Brian Mullady will be here on Thursday, and our Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, will be back here on Friday for another week of EWTN's Open Line. Until we get together next time, have a great weekend and God bless.